Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently released a new bonus episode on our favorite revenge movies, and we have another one in the works about the latest developments on Succession and the Netflix series Beef. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Epps and Genevieve Kosky. Our absent co-host Tasha Robinson is out printing her mission statement at Kinko's, but she'll join us again next time. So if you were into playing sports as a young person, as I certainly was, then surely you dreamed of the possibility that one day you'd be out there winning the big game in front of cheering fans and carried off the field by your teammates. And there are tons of inspirational sports movies that feed into that fantasy. But as you get older and realize that you suck at sports, perhaps you dream of using your brain to capitalize on the talent of athletes who don't suck at sports. Secondhand glory is still glory, after all, and you don't have to deal with the hassles of fame. And the good news is there are inspirational sports movies for uncoordinated eggheads like us, too. Genevieve, do you want to tell us about this week's pairing? Sure. Ben Affleck's new movie, Air, is a Michael Jordan movie without Michael Jordan, or at least we only see him in profile. But everyone in the audience already knows that Jordan is considered by many to be the greatest basketball player ever. Air takes place at a time when that was far from certain, telling the true story of how Nike, a minor player in the basketball shoe market, gambled big on the number three pick in the 1984 NBA draft and changed the sports business forever. And the hero here isn't a generational icon, but a pallid, middle-aged scout named Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon, who pours over game film and decides to stake his reputation on his faith in a single athlete. As another guy behind the guy in Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise plays a slick agent for a big sports management company who also gambles on a single athlete, though that's not quite what he intended. After writing a mission statement that dramatically counters the company's greedy approach to client relations, Jerry loses his job and starts a new company with one co-worker who believes in his vision, an accountant and single mother played by Renee Zellweger. Their fortunes are tied to a demanding, temperamental wide receiver played by Cuba Gooding Jr. There's no doubt Affleck himself saw the connections between his film and Jerry Maguire, because he cast Jay Moore, who plays an underhanded agent in Crow's film, in a bit part as an Adidas executive in Air. So this week, we will sit at our desks like the heroes of these sports movies and talk about Jerry Maguire, which tries to find the idealistic side of a business plagued by cynicism. And then next week, we'll bring in Air, which is about believing in yourself and standing by your conviction that Michael Jordan would be very good at basketball. My name is Jerry Maguire. I'm a sports agent. You could say I'm at the top of my game. But something just isn't right. Jerry Maguire! What can I do for you, Rod? Show me the money. You know what I'm Show me the money! Money! Can you sign my card? Sorry, little fella. I can't sign this brand of card. Only Pro Jam Blue Dot cards. And lately, it's getting worse. Came here to let you go. <laughs> Pardon me? I came here to fire you, Jerry. I'm not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, which is just flip out. Who's coming with me? Who is coming with me? I will go with you. Dorothy Boyd, thank you. We're going to be okay because I am going to take my one client and we are going to go all the way. Help me, Rod. Help me help you. Help me help you. You hanging on by a very thin thread. And I dig that about you. I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. These are the words of Lloyd Dobler, the romantic hero of Say Anything, 
the first feature by rock journalist turned novelist turned screenwriter turned director Cameron Crowe. Lloyd, an amiable high schooler played by John Cusack, is trying to talk about his future to his girlfriend's disapproving father, who expects a more suitable partner to his valedictorian daughter. She has a bright future, and a slacker like Lloyd will only hold her back. But the question she's asking herself before Lloyd even enters the picture is, holding me back from what? Quote, I've seen the future, she jokes at her valedictorian speech, and all I can say is, go back. Crow's career as a filmmaker has many characters like Lloyd Dobler, battered idealists who either don't fit into the world they've entered or have misgivings about being there. This includes Crow himself, whose semi-autobiographical film Almost Famous is about a precocious teenage rock journalist who's attracted and repelled by the scene he's covering and is constantly trying to figure out where he belongs. In Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise's title character has already reached the near pinnacle of his career as a sports agent but starts to wonder about the cost it has exacted on his soul. He got into the business wanting to create true partnerships with athletes as they navigate the ups and downs of their chosen sport, but greed and inattention has left him pushing for clients to play through concussions or defending their indefensible off-field actions. When Jerry has an existential crisis one evening, he winds up emerging the next morning with a mission statement calling for fewer clients and more personal attention. That gets him fired by a sleazy former protege. On the way out the door, Jerry scrambles to take his existing clients with him, but only one stays with him. That's Rod Tidwell, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., an undersized wide receiver from Arizona whose reputation for being a difficult, temperamental teammate is keeping him from the big dollars. Jerry does convert one disciple in the office, however. Dorothy Boyd, played by Renee Zellweger, an accountant and single mother with much more to lose, especially after Jerry's hopes to represent a number one NFL draft pick fall through. His new business venture inevitably gets tangled up in a romantic relationship that may not be healthy for either of them. I love him for the man he wants to be, and I love him for the man he almost is, confesses Dorothy to her sister Laurel, played by Bonnie Hunt. And that's the balance that a Crow character like Jerry is trying to strike, to negotiate a place for himself that's in line with his ideals. And to be clear, Jerry is not Lloyd Dobler, who genuinely doesn't seem to have given his future much thought. Jerry wants money, he wants to win, and he wants a healthy relationship and a family. What he wants is Rod Tidwell's life. That's a large part of what makes the dynamic between Jerry and Rod so strong in the film. Jerry is literally begging Rod to take his advice. Help me, help you, he says. But whenever Jerry gets a glimpse at what Rod has with his wife Marcy, played by Regina King, the holes in his life grow that much more conspicuous. He is not the man he wants to be. He needs to unlearn the habits that led to his breakdown in the first place. We live in a cynical world, says Jerry in his final monologue to Dorothy, and we work in a business of tough competitors. At this point in the movie, we're right on the cusp of the famous you complete me line, but it's important to recognize this part of the speech, which is revealing of Crow's thinking. Jerry cannot be Lloyd Doppler because he does operate in this cynical world and in a business of tough competitors. It's nothing he can avoid or transcend, and it's definitely nothing Dorothy can avoid or transcend either because she's a single mom who lives with her sister and needs health care. But he's trying to do the adult thing of finding some place where his values are sustainable. Jerry Maguire gives you the big game touchdown pass at the end, but there are many small plays on the drive that made it possible. I have a question for you, Are we really friends? Why not? I mean, because friends can tell each other anything if we have our friends' hats on, right? Yeah, I think so. All right. I'll tell you why you don't have your $10 million yet. Right now, you are a paycheck player. You play with your head, not your heart. In your personal life, heart. But when you get on the field, it's all about what you didn't get, who's to blame, who underthrew the pass. Who's got the contract you don't? Who's not giving you your love? You know what? That is not what inspires people. That is not what inspires people. Just shut up. Play the game. Play it from your heart. And you know what? I will show you the quan. And that's the truth, man. That's the truth. Can you handle it? It's just a question between friends. You know?
So Genevieve, I have to start with you because it's it's always fun to start '90s films <laughs> with you because you were very young when they came out, and then and we saw them as adults. I'm still young, uh, Scott. <laughs> We are very young, though. Very. Um, you're like, wait, this. I can't see this. It's the rating is not good. Um, so, so I think you you said that you'd only wa- had watched uh, Jerry Maguire in bits and pieces over the years. So you're coming to the film from quite a bit of distance, time wise, at least as a whole experience. Uh, how did it work for you? You know, I I know I said that when we were talking about this, but because like I don't have clear memories of this like as a film. Like all my memories of Jerry Maguire are the memories everyone has. You know, you complete me, human head weighs eight pounds, show me the money, all you know that stuff. <laughs> but as I was watching it, I was like, no, I have seen this. I'm pretty sure I've seen this whole movie because I I was like recognizing and remembering scenes like all the way up through Tidwell's big fall and, and come back during the game, which is pretty close to the end of the movie. But also I had like no memory of them getting, of Jerry and Dorothy getting married. So like, I, I just like I, my memory had just glossed over large parts of this movie. And I think most of those parts are the ones involving the romance because it's like just Tom Cruise as a romantic lead is kind of a hard sell for me. The chemistry between him and Renee Zellweger, like, like, it's fine, I guess, but he has, like, so much more chemistry with Jonathan Lipnicki <laughs> than with the woman he, he supposedly loves. And I just, like, I had a real hard time buying the love story element of this movie, but I really like the other half of it. Like, I, I like the stuff with him and Rod and, you know, striking out on his own. And if Dorothy had just been, like, his coworker and his support system, like, I'd probably be fine with that. I don't know that I would mourn <laughs> not having a, a, a romance between them. Maybe I'm in the minority there. But so my answer is, like, I like Jerry Maguire fine. Uh, I like parts of it a lot more than others. And the parts that I don't like, I seem to have completely erased from my memory. <laughs> until now. (laughs) Keith, how about you? You know, I think with most movies, I would agree with Genevieve about the whole Tom Cruise uh, romantically, but I, I think there's really not a lot about this movie that doesn't work for me. And I have the, my experience with this movie is like, you know, seeing it when it was out and liking it. And then every time I revisit it, it's like, I think I really love this movie. I think this is actually just really just well, certainly one of Cameron Crowe's best films. I think that's not really a tough argument to make, but it's like, uh, you know, this, 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 is, this is a movie that, that works for me. It's a movie about trying to live an authentic existence. I mean, you know, I almost in some ways, I think I feel like I, I don't know for sure. It feels like to get the sports details right, but I, it almost feels like that is a world in which this story could take place, but it's 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 sort of like more of a framework for, for the story he really wants to tell, which is kind of the story at the heart of Cameron Crowe's best films, which is like, you know, how, how not to be a, a, a jerk, you know, how, how to be like a, a, a person who's worth their space on this on, on the earth. And, and, um, and it, it really works for me as that. Yeah, that, that was kind of something I was kind of getting at in the keynote as well about, you know, the difference between Lloyd Dobler, the hero of Say Anything, and, and Jerry Maguire. I mean, they, they, the difference is age, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, in uh, in the fact that is that Lloyd Dobler at, you know, being you know, high schooler can afford to have that attitude of just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, I just want to be with your daughter was his, was his line. Jeremy Maguire is not that they're not alike in that way. Um, he, he lives in, in the, the real world. He makes, he makes a living. He wants to make money. He wants to have things, but he also wants to do it in a way that, that align with what he believes in and what he's comfortable with and what seems sustainable and, and right. And, uh, the path of least compromise, maybe not no compromise, but least compromise. And so it feels very like a very adult version of the same sort of internal discussion that I guess the, his characters having with themselves. And I think also it's kind of a continuation of that film's view on love, where it's like, you know, you love is really, you know, love is like the most important thing. You need to be with the person you love, the person that completes you, so to speak. Um, but in this, you know, it's about how you, you got to work at that, you know, just finding the right person, you know, or finding the, the right person at the wrong time or not bringing, bringing your whole heart to it is, is just, it's a, it's a, it's going to short circuit that relationship. I, I, I really like that. I do like, you know, I had also kind of forgotten, you know, I've seen it a few times, but not probably in the last five or six years that the marriage is halfway through the movie or two thirds (laughs) of the way through. And, and I think it's actually pretty brilliant because it's like, you know, romantic comedies end in marriage. Right. And this is, this is, I think it's one of the ways this subverts that because it, it, 
there's this phrase that uh, I remember from English class, which is that marriage is non-narrative, right? You know, marriage is not a story. Marriage is, is you know, you have the marriage plot, the, the story ends in marriage, but that's just not, you know, that's not true in real life. It doesn't have to be true in, you know, in, in fiction either. And I, I think this, this film's interesting exploring what happens after the marriage vows and also what happens when those vows are maybe felt, but, but said prematurely or with too many distractions. You know, I think it's a nice touch in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't disagree, and I don't want to like overstate my dislike of the romantic half of this. And I, I, but I think maybe the reason I struggle a little bit with this romance is because it's not a very romantic romance. <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. like you complete me line aside, I don't quite understand the how the film resolves the criticism that is leveled at Jerry early in the film that he can't be alone. That's said over and over again about him, like as if it's a a fault of of, a flaw. And the fact that the movie does that, like, I, I guess I'm like expecting it to pay that off somehow. And the way it pays it off is him not being alone and hooking up with the one woman who would go with him and showed him loyalty, which is like his seems to be the primary driver of this relationship and all of Jerry's relationships is is loyalty. And like, you know, loyalty is good. Not being not wanting to be alone, very understandable, but it doesn't necessarily translate to love for the ages to me. <laughs> so I think like if the film had kind of committed to just that sort of maybe almost banal view of like life partnership, I might have respected it more. But like the final scene, Hail Mary, you complete me, you had me at hello, this, you know, like weepy big romantic ending, it feels a little false to me in the context of everything that came before. Okay. I didn't say that. <laughs> it really is like this to me. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> all, fine. all that stuff yeah. works for me. You know what? You know what? It, it, it worked. It worked for, for my husband too. So maybe I'm just a grump. But you know, like it's. Well, is it? I guess it's a question of him not being able to be alone so much as him under kind of finally understanding what intimacy actually means. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think I think that's kind of more the journey that he ends up taking. Like, like I think you could say that he's the pro- the real problem with him is that he is alone and he's always been alone you know even with the when he's with mm-hmm. someone because he doesn't he, he he puts up this that he puts up these sort of barriers or these barriers are set to where that he can't transcend and maybe maybe he feels the solution is he obviously feels the solution is to is to cling to someone but uh you know and, and, and you know and out of his you know desperation he he uh marry someone without having the talk or without without really being you know uh in the right place to have it but i think in the end it's just about okay what is this actually what's important you know and 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 what is and i think it's about just you know kind of discovering intimacy and, and why sharing something important with the person you love is i mean that's the realize, realization he needs to have at the end you know at, the, at that moment when he's when rod has gotten his his, his, his sort of touchdown and it's like oh I, I know who i want to be with in this in this moment to share this moment with and you know obviously he doesn't want to be alone in that moment but it is it's still i think intimacy is the thing that he's trying to achieve in that relationship um but you know i would say i'm not gonna i'll, I'll give maybe a compromised position with regard to the romance in the movie i think it becomes far more compelling and interesting from the moment that they get married. Mm-hmm. Uh, the courtship part of it is a little bit harder to find romantic, really, yeah. it, it, because almost because it's false in a way. I mean, you yeah. know, not, not only is it, not only is he sort of... It, it begins cling, horribly cling, cling <laughs> with, 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 with an act of sexual harassment. Well, yeah, yeah, and it was, it, it was, inter- it was, it was uh, uh, you know, the reference to Clarence Thomas was a reminder of just how long, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the, that person has been been with us <laughs> as yeah. a villain. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, well, well, there's that. But there's also, I think, there's also a, an issue on her end of things, too, in the sense that that comes up and sort of plagues her later, which is that, oh, this this guy really loves my son, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this, he's, you know, and it's a great little line. I mean, this, this film is just so loaded with memorable, memorable one-liners, whether you like them or not, but but she has a good line about just like, you know, he loves my son and he, and he sure does like me a lot, yeah, you know, I mean, like, I like, like that. and I think that's an interesting that to me and that's again that's a post marriage thing that's a realization just like you know what i deserve more than that you know like 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 i can demand more for myself than somebody who is you know this kind of warm body who loves who loves my son but isn't giving me everything that i need and deserve um and i and i think it's important for her 
at that moment too, to be able to make that decision for herself and to make it make that stand for herself. Because I think one of the issues this film could have had a little bit more for me is, is that she would just be kind of one of the people that were, were sort of making him who he was, that she's just mm-hmm. exists as this kind of like catalyst that is going to like bring him to the place that he wants to be. And, and um, which kind of erases her fullness, I guess, or her, her within the, within the story. Uh, and so I think that the film gets her finally gets to a point where, where it sort of honors that from her. And I think it becomes quite romantic. I do, I do also kind of swayed by the end of the film as much as it's been replayed. I think it's, it's, uh, it's pretty lovely, but, but you know, to get, to, but I want to kind of circle back and talk about Tom Cruise. <laughs> I mean, one thing about Tom Cruise that I think makes him difficult as a romantic hero is because he just doesn't act like a person. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the time, like it's mm-hmm. so, it's so distracting. And I think, but I also think that it's work, worked into the movie <laughs> in a way, you know, like, like there is, you know, the, the casting of Tom Cruise, our image of who Tom Cruise is, is this super slick, untouchable, unknowable movie star. You know, that that's something that's something that we kind of start with, or at least that's the image of Jerry Maguire as this as master of the living room of somebody who has this incredible charisma and he's got the hair and he's got he, he can, you know, talk anybody who wanted a deal. And to try to break that down and try to find something real there is kind of the project of the movie. And I think that makes it it makes it effective that Tom Cruise is the via is the person who is the guy for that part. But that said, it still it still becomes very strange to see just to see him talk and interact with people. There's he just yeah that was what I was I watch, watching the movie. I just you just think how you know you can see you can see like oh it's obvious why he's a huge movie star, and then you also think who is this alien who doesn't hmm. act like a person? I well, it comes from a period when he was pretty good at seeking out directors who knew how to use his star persona you know before he became action hero full-time which which i you know this movie kind of made me nostalgic for for a lot of things um but um that was one of them too it's like there was a period when it it, at the very least you know and i I like his action movies I, i look forward to tom cruise movies now but like there's a period you know this run of of crow and kubrick and Paul Thomas Anderson and a bunch of others Um, when like Spielberg, his Spielberg phase too, it was, it was like, Oh, he he's going, he's finding people that could actually put him to good use, you know? And I, I think you're right. I think, I think that, that, kind of aura of otherness uh is you know someone who's too handsome and too charming to really quite pass as you say as a human is is used is used pretty well here i I also think it's used i don't want to sidetrack us but i think it's used that whole breaking down that confidence and slickness is used really well in vanilla sky which is a vastly underrated movie i'll look for us Mm -hmm. to pair at some point (laughs) with something I don't know. It just comes back to the, the romantic lead thing. And I, I, I'm fully willing to chalk this up to like personal hang up. But like watching him seduce her on her front porch just made me viscerally uncomfortable <laughs> in this <laughs> movie. Like I just and that may be just because Tom Cruise has taken on a lot of baggage in the time since yeah. since then. And it's kind of hard to separate that on a, on a current viewing. But like because he has this like sense of otherness, I guess, it feels like the chemistry bet- between him and female leads in particular is just never really never feels real to me it feels performative and you know it can be performed well but it doesn't necessarily feel real i think it helps that renee zellweger is so good at it mm-hmm. though I mean, she's like, so vulnerable yeah, I, I, and, and like maybe exactly. but like maybe that's a part of it like it feels mismatched you know be in mm. you know especially at the beginning of their relationship we talked about this like he's obviously been taken down many pegs but he still holds all the power in this relationship he he holds her livelihood in in his hands and that power dynamic combined with just her extremely vulnerable performance which i agree is very good again it makes me uncomfortable at at, like right from the outset of their relationship yeah i mean i i can't really argue with that other than other than i guess it works a little bit better for me Uh, and again it works quite well for me when things get a little bit deeper in in a marriage that should not (laughs) happen at least at that at the moment that it does happens then i think the film starts to gain a little bit more you know gravity uh, though it's nice, I mean, you know, uh, maybe this is, we should open this up to so many of the, uh, the other characters too, because it really, 
you know, the other big relationship in this movie is is the relationship between Jerry and Rod Tidwell, and that kind of brings us into some of the other characters. Uh, uh, Marcy, played by uh, Regina King, mm-hmm. is, a, is an important one. So I'm curious about how that played for you, about that friendship between Rod and, and Jerry, about the tensions between them. How, how did that work for you all? It worked for me. I, I mean, I, I felt like there was a kind of constant negotiation. I, I mean, the idea there's really no reason for for Rod to stick with him except out of out of loyalty. And like as you say, that's the most you know most important thing to the character in, in some ways. But but it's it's doing it on his own terms. You know, I mean, again, the, this movie has been quoted to death. But but that showing the money scene makes sense to me. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. just you know a spoiled athlete demanding something. It's it's a, a demand for respect. And and I really you know so much of the movie is about contrasting. What, as you pointed out in the keynote, uh, Scott, what, what what Marcy and Rod have, and and what Jerry and Dorothy don't, and you know, I, I really like that relationship as well. It's like, boy, Regina King's really great in this movie too, man. I mean, there's just so many good performances in this. I, I love that we meet Marcy before we meet Rod. It just speaks to the centrality of her in in their relationship, and like they do not have that power imbalance that was kind of that I'm struggling with in the in the Jerry Dorothy relationship. Like you, you very much feel like they are a partnership and like of course that's what jerry sees and wants and i i think that's that's well done in the film well it's also what dorothy demands mm-hmm. at a certain point True. too and I, and I i mean that's kind of and i think that's a very old and important component of you know the romantic comedies of the past i mean the equality the equality battle between the sexes equality that, that those are the really essential elements of you know sort of classic american romantic comedies and and you know you kind of see a version of that played out here and i mean obviously crow did did the uh the big billy wilder you know interview book i mean he's he's aware of the, that tradition as well and i think that's an important part of the movie is for for dorothy to be to, to make that marriage into something a little bit more democratic where she can have a say as well. Uh, to go back to the relationship between Jerry and Rod, like I, that, that's my favorite of the film, except for maybe between Jerry and, and Ray, which I do want to touch on Jonathan Lipnicki uh, before this conversation ends. But Jerry and Rod, like the, the tension between them is so interesting and it develops and changes throughout the film as they like, Jerry mostly kind of dances around how to handle Rod, like how to get what he needs out of Rod without alienating him. And their communication styles are so different. I mean, uh, Rod's communication style is like uh, all entirely off on its own, as you see, as we see in the uh, show me the money scene. Such a great rhythm and energy to that scene that I feel kind of belongs to Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, he's terrific. I mean, I I, I like that. Again, it's one of those things where you know, if it's just about, you know, you know, Jerry persuading him to his way of doing things, of of remembering how to, you know, what he loved about the game and playing the right way and not being a pain in the butt and all that stuff, it would, you know, it would be dodgy and not good. Yeah, uh, but, didn't that, didn't that one speech kind of remind you like a little bit of like every like middle aged uh-huh. white guy calling yep. into a sports talk show? You know, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think the movie smooths it out at that point, but there is a little bit of a, you know spoiled superstar uh, with some racial subtext to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, Like in in even when he's explaining about how the business is gone, I mean, it's like. Uh, you know, it's like the black football player he represents is the one who's been, you know, is up on criminal charges, and the you know the white hockey player is someone who's playing through con- con- concussions. It's not mm. not uh, not the same thing, but 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 in any case, you do get that counterbalance. At least you do you do get so many things um, that Jerry has to learn from Rod. You know, particularly about you know single mothers. The you know and about you know how, how relationships are supposed to work i mean it's it's uh it's important and it's and it's also something that is uh reflected you know in the dynamic between rod and marcy which which again you know is um really well played uh you know it's one it's a thing that you can do in a that could have been done in a clumsy or a didactic way but but uh that relationship feels uh quite real and um you know, I mean, scenes like scenes like that, the, the whole family kind of sitting down together, you know, watching a, watching Rod play football. I mean, it just feels like 
exactly the kind of scene that would happen if you if if you know the family of a of a big football star got together to watch a game on <laughs> uh, watch a big money night football game together and just you know the 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 uh you know all that is really really well done and in the you know i mean the, the realer you can make it seem the the the, the better yeah it's a it's a good film and it's and it's it's, it's, just, it's nice to see like so many characters in this movie pop the way they do uh i i'll leave ray to uh <laughs> to to genevieve but uh you know bonnie hunt is mm-hmm. is really uh terrific in the movie just so so wry and funny and i mean she's and, she's uh, the character i relate to the most watching this movie <laughs> just like the constant yes, like, the constant uh, doubting of everything that <laughs> dorothy is doing yeah and she sees she sees through him she she sees him so well mm-hmm. in a way that dorothy can't cannot um you know, because she, she maybe she didn't read the the, the memo. <laughs> it's a mission <laughs> um, statement, but uh, the mission <laughs> statement. Um, and uh, you know, and then there are other really good performances. I, I you know, I think Jay Moore is really good as uh, that very very it, just makes your skin crawl kind of an agent. Uh, I like <laughs> his, his range is so narrow, Jay Moore. But when he's when he has the right part, <laughs> it's so good. It is really yeah, it's true. You never really, really Jay Moore has never really called on to do a whole lot. But uh, this is this is this is the Jay Moore role. Uh, yeah. I think Bo Bridges is really good. That's a character mm-hmm. that 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 again, you didn't have to make a character that character really pop the way he does, but he does. Um, you know, he, it, it, all of his actions make sense. His duplicity, you know, my word is stronger than Oak. I mean, there's there's a thing. I mean, when he says he's trying to do his best for his son, that's that's probably that's true, right? You know, and uh, and he's got somebody saying if someone's saying to him that Jerry Maguire is off his rocker and can't give him can't give his kid what he what what he wants or do 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 a deal that he wants and take care of him, then maybe he's going to listen to that guy. So I, I don't know. There was it was uh, it's a, that's a very fine performance. There's a lot there. Uh, uh, and what about what about you all? Any any other any characters kind of stand out for you? Well, uh, to tag off what you you were saying about Bo Bridges' character, like. Yes, I agree. It's a good performance, but also that character kind of feels like like I I don't think we're supposed to like feel understanding for that character's point of view uh, or like w- where he's coming from. Like I think we're just supposed to see him as like someone who screwed over Jerry Maguire. And oh yeah, that, and that's it's the same way I feel about Avery Kelly Preston's character, who, oh who seems to exist solely to just. Yeah, make no, Jerry that's the, she's by <laughs> she's by far the worst character. Yeah. Worst character yeah. in the movie. There's no, I mean that, that that's just a big whiff there. Really bad. Yeah. I don't think really, it's Preston's really fault. I no. mean, and, all right, no, the, the all right, all right, right, right so too, but, but yeah, yeah uh, um, yeah, no, she's she's. <laughs> she's it, it's it's nice that there's a lot of other fully fleshed out complex women in this movie. Yeah, uh, let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I kind of skipped over that that question, yeah. but, but uh, <laughs> talking over the women in the film, but because uh, that one is just like ah, oh, so brutal. It was br- yeah. it was it's always it it just keeps looking worse and worse over yeah. time. Just like uh, she just character. straight up assaults him. Yeah, she really kicks the shit it's out just, of him. <laughs> Not, well, it's uh, also kind of like it's just it's out of place in the mm-hmm. movie. If the movie yeah. kind of wants to be taken semi seriously or feel like it feel like these characters are real, like like that is just kind of this conception of a you know kind of monstrous you know type a you know it's just a, it's, kind of, it's kind of just yeah. a, right i mean just it's kind of like this pretty sexist construct of a person it's not really a yeah, it's bad. It's uh, I mean, it's not. I mean, I guess it's not. It's not Kelly Preston's fault, but uh, it is. I I don't know. If, I mean, who's playing that character? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, well, yeah. It's uh, it's just a bad idea. I'm a fan of Todd Luisa. Yeah, <laughs> who's, the, who's the a, nanny. A, a, a yeah. <laughs> he loves jazz. And also, I also love that 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 you know that character probably with his with his jazz mixtape. I mean, that's. Cameron Crowe's own own love and affection and thoughts mm-hmm. on jazz, but being put into the mouth of uh, someone, they, they could have some fun with it uh, as well too. You know, I I, uh, I don't know. I, I think he's he's a lot of funny. And he also like a lot of the uh, you know Kelly Preston's character aside, it's like a lot of characters in the in the movie where it's like you get the, you don't necessarily get that much screen time with him, but you get the sense this is a real character with depth and and not just uh, a punchline. He also facilitates my favorite part of the the love scene between Jerry and Dorothy that I uh, generally don't care for. But when he goes like, what is this music? <laughs> good line. Good line. Thanks for that, Chad. 
you know, while we're talking about characters with sort of suggested rich inner lives, Ray is not that, you know, <laughs> like he's a, he's a five-year-old, he, you know, and he really kind of only serves one function in this movie, but he serves it really well. Like, I love this child performance because he's a child, you know, like he he's not older than his years. He's not wise, like imparting subtle life lessons to Jerry. He's just like kind of a delight and Jerry's delighted by him. And he's a cute but kind of odd looking kid, you know, like you just it feels like every time he's on screen, I feel like you can understand why adults are just like interested in seeing what he's going to say or what he's going to do or how he's going to swing off of you, <laughs> you know? I just feel like in movies like this, especially I I don't think that we get just kind of uncomplicated kid roles that that often and uncomplicated no. kid performances either you know like, well, cause, like <laughs> kids are not necessarily that complicated yeah you know? exactly <laughs> you want to like regale you with facts about the human the size of the weight of the human right. head yeah yeah and i mean he's the, like lipnicki was more or less the age of the character you know like he wasn't playing younger he was just it's a very like I guess organic performance, and I I appreciate that. And the scene where he like sneaks out of bed uh, when when Jerry's drunk, visiting drunk, and just kind of laughing at la- laughing with delight at Ray. I just love that scene. Uh, yeah, well, right. That's the scene too where he's uh, he talks to Rod Tidwell on the phone. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is really great because Rod wants to talk to wants to talk to Jerry. He just he just keeps him keeps giving him the business. It's it's uh it's a good it's good stuff for sure. Um, you know, and it's and it's important. It's an important part of the film because you know I, 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 we need him to have uh, you know enough kind of delightful energy you know to be so you know disarming and and you know and winning enough to to. Uh, to where Jerry is invested in him and in in you know clicks with him in a, in a in a way that he doesn't with his mother, yeah. <laughs> you know. I so uh, so it is it is it is uh, a good good work for sure. Um, human head weighs eight pounds, which is now <laughs> we have have that uh, we'll have that knowledge with us uh, forever. Um, so uh, so so there's that too. So there's something to be said here about capitalism. I already, I already talked about. You know how, how it's not really a factor in something like say anything, which which is about you know a, a high schooler really doesn't have to kind of worry about you know making their way in the in the world. But this is this is about two characters who Jerry and Rod who are trying to make money, and you know how how does the kind of almighty dollar factor into all of this movie? I mean, it's not about just the almighty dollar; it's about the Quan. but which is a fun word and i I assume supposed to be like coin but the the subtitle spelled it kwan like k-w-a-n but anyway Mm -hmm. um it's like it's about the money yes but it's also about all the other things you need for the money to be meaningful you know it's about love respect community family you know like without any of those things, money is just money, you know, and it's nice, but it's empty. And it seems to be like how Jerry is living at the beginning of the film, just, you know, it's pure capitalism without the Quan, you know, and so his his arc is finding the Quan, I guess, within this extremely capitalist uh, system. I think also, you know, the, the from the first, you know, from showing the money on, I think they do the film nicely establishes how you know it is like it is about more than money as you say and even things like the endorsement deals which can come off you know can come off as like seeming kind of tacky and there's part of me that like still will always find you know that kind that whole world a little tacky but it's also it is a sign of legitimacy and status and and respect and and you know for, for Rod knows he's better than 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 local mattress ads <laughs> you know and it's not even about wanting I'm sure he wants the money he wants the exposure but but it's but it's also about just establishing his place in the world to to have better endorsement deals and um, I, I appreciated that perspective on it because. You, know, you can kind of from the outside it just looks like well this is this is a rich person getting richer i also appreciated the scene where he says to jerry like 
I've got maybe five years left that I can earn mm-hmm. enough money for to support my family for the rest of their lives, <laughs> essentially. Like that that's what he wants. He's not just he doesn't just want money more money for the sake of money. He wants to he wants all the work and all the damage he's been doing to his body to mean something beyond this immediate moment. And I think that's a really it's a fine insight on on Rod's part. <laughs> I mean it's and it's really good for this movie to exist to to remind people of that too because I think there's just this idea it's society of just oh these athletes they're just making millions to play a sport you know and if they ask for more they want to get paid you know it's 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 greed why would you you know how how could you possibly be worth this money for playing a game and of course you know with football there's there is that short shelf life of just you're getting beat up careers don't last very long they can end very quickly but the there is also the thing of like um, what is your worth to the franchise, to this, you know, like what is your piece of the overall pie too? I mean, like, you know, because the, you know, the, none of these teams are making any money without their athletes, you know? And, and so, and so they need to be, you know, if, if the owners are making, you know, billions off of the, the game, then they should be, they should have their piece of that as well. So, so I'm, I'm glad that the, the, the film is aware of it though. There is kind of something about like the Quan needing to have the money component in it. Like what about, mm-hmm. a, what, what about, a, what about a life that has all that other stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but, but isn't about money too. I mean, I, I you know, I, to be kind of Jerry Maguire is, is a film that's about reconciling yourself to a capitalist, you know, career or life or society or what have you like a a a life you know a life as an adult where you're in where where you have to uh, where you're in kind of a compromised scenario scenario from the start or where you have to kind of like figure out how you're going to make money or a lot of money and and have that have that be a piece of things uh, without selling yourself out in other in big and small ways yeah no I, i i very much agree with that and i think with jerry in particular it's about literally all the other parts of Quan, uh, him, him attaining all the other parts of Quan <laughs> yeah. other than the money. Because he's, I mean, he's getting a commission from Rod, but he's not, you know, making the same amount of money uh, as, as him. You know, like he, uh, he is rich, uh, very well off at the beginning of the film, but by the end of it, he's it's all riding on rod, you know, and like he is going yeah. to do well off of this deal, but it's not like set for life well. And I think like the power of the movie is him realizing that like, that's okay because he got all the mm. other parts of it. He got respect this and community true. and loyalty. Yeah. And then, and then what he'll end up with ideally, you know, is what, what his mission statement was about, which is, mm-hmm. you know, fewer clients that are well attended to a, a living that is more than respectable but not greedy uh that is kind of something right. sustainable and healthy and and, and balanced and th- that works and uh you know that, that maybe that's something that we all in our ways uh whether we're in sports or you know media you know jur- jur- media <laughs> podcasting maybe we're all trying to find that balance uh, because, uh, yeah, I've, uh, so to help that balance for us a little bit better, subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Show us the money. Show us the money. It all just, it all kind of gets cobbled together. Uh, uh, like, like Homer Simpson. Don't ask me how the economy works. Um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting. The Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we're recording this episode, Adam welcomed special guest host Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. I know that guy. Yeah, I know him too. He's a good one. Uh, 
he, he's special. He's always special. And uh, he he also did an interview with showing up director Kelly Reichert, much like I did, and much like many <laughs> many other people did. But she's great, and uh, uh, and you can listen to that on Film Spotting. As for our podcast. Let's start with some feedback about our last episode, which paired Before Sunrise with Rye Lane. Listener Sarah has some thoughts about the Richard Linklater movie, which she considers one of her favorites. Keith, want to read this one? I do. Sarah writes, I want to add to Genevieve's great point about the communication during the episode. Far into the film, as Jesse and Celine have grown closer, and in particular, his snarky defenses are coming down, they walk down an alley and Jesse admits he would rather be really good at something than build strong emotional connections in life. Celine counters with a story about the man she had worked for who was lonely and felt his life was meaningless. She points out that if there is any magic in the world, it comes from sharing space with others, and then they sit together in silence. Linklater's camera work in this sequence has always stood out to me. He frames Julie Delpy shakily as if the viewer is Ethan Hawke, sitting close and observing every single word she speaks. The few cuts we get to Ethan Hawke's face show him as a drowning man drinking up all the water she's offering. And then Linklater frames them sitting together, absorbing what Julie Delpy just said. It's awkward and vulnerable and meaningful, and he gives us a second to breathe and understand what has just shifted between the two in terms of importance of feelings and their connection. I love the whole series for the quiet moments like this. The record booth scene, Jesse reaching to move Celine's hair, Celine moving to stroke his hair in Before Sunset. I could go on forever. The silences are often the most meaningful moments of connection. I love that point. And like, yeah, it's really, really well observed. Yeah. And dialogue is such a huge part of that film. It's kind of uh, understandable to focus on that instead of kind of digging into these quiet moments. I guess we did with with the record booth scene, but I'm, I'm really glad Sarah kind of uh, took the opportunity to highlight something that is not not so conversation based. And of course, it's so true to how relationships work as well, particularly at the beginning, because those silences are very awkward. I mean, like the record booth scene is a romantic moment, but also an awkward moment as, mm-hmm. as any, as, as it is anytime you stand around, like <laughs> you're listening to, to um, a record, particularly one that's kind of loaded with significance. You know, the, the you know, we, we fill the air with conversation to keep from those, to keep those silence from, silences from happening. Cause they're so, they can be so pregnant with meaning or, 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 you know, or just plain awkwardness. But you're right. I mean, you kind of have to listen between the notes in, mm, yeah. in, uh, in these movies and just kind of, you know, discover the, those, those moments when, when the conversation breaks down or, or stop, just stops. And, and they, have, have, they really have to share those silences that the magic does pass between them and uh, something, something exciting happens. Uh, so thank you for that, Sarah. We also have, you know, a really good voicemail from, Listener Bob, who <laughs> you may know also as uh, as husband to podcaster Tasha, on Point Blank that, that we've been anxious to share uh, because it has some insight about the value not just of that film, but of other films from the era. Hi, this is Bob with a comment about Point Blank. As part of your excellent discussion, you mentioned the trippy atmosphere of the film and the possibility that it's a dream or a pre-death hallucination. And while that explanation is viable, I feel like the filmmakers, like others of their time, were really groping towards a way to portray the real inner experience of life. Now, an outsider might see a real person's mind as a chaotic jumble of thoughts and associations, and one of the challenges of narrative is to compress and simplify this into a form we can follow and enjoy. But as this gets more and more refined, it creates figures who are so single-minded and transparent that they seem artificial to audiences. So in the 60s, commercial filmmakers experimented with depicting messy internal experience, often using a high concept as cover. In Slaughterhouse-Five, it's time travel. In Don't Look Now, it's precognition. But a remarkable thing about Point Blank is that it does it without genre handholding, and at the same time keeps the viewer engaged. They keep the story and characters simple and iconic, so that while it's not immediately certain why Walker is picturing any particular image, the viewer at least has the tools and the time to speculate about it. Is he flashing back to the reunion for clues about his friend, or himself, or about the nature of fate? Is he imagining the league quartet in bed together with revulsion, or curiosity, or bitter amusement? We aren't told the answers, but the questions are well prepared. This is a kind of filmmaking I miss, honestly, part of what makes the 60s and the 70s special. When Hollywood tried to simultaneously digest the contradictory tenets of neorealism and surrealism and created a novel approach to what both movements were after, which is reality. 
that's good stuff, Bob. I, you know, I, I we we were really kind of trying to, you know, unpack those little blips in time, and you know, uh, it, it's I I like this explanation of it. I'm just trying to find a way to give you some kind of to use the tools of cinema to give you an internal complexity and to lend an internal complexity to a the type of story the type of revenge story that's bone simple and of course that's exactly what Soderbergh ended up doing with with, with the limey when he kind of you know lifted a lot of what point blank did for what he did which is just like you know in that movie too it's just it's just a guy seeking revenge they're seeking his daughter you know trying to find out what happened to his daughter but also seeking revenge um it's just you know that is not that you know that type of a character is a character that we'd seen before, you know, in genre films of the, of the past, and certainly we would see them again in the future. But to have you know this opportunity to 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 play on the audience's awareness of of how and familiarity and grounding in in that kind of a story, while also you know trying to use film to make that more complex. That's that um, that's something Point Blank does well, and I think that's something that the letter illuminates very nicely. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Air, another movie about a guy who's going to take his one client and he's going to go all the way. Look for that episode next Tuesday in your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also show us the money. Uh, you can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, please know that we're out here for you. Recording this podcast is an up-at-dawn, pride-swallowing siege that we'll never fully tell you about. <laughs>